All right, so we continue on this uh, series I've been doing on simplicity, spirituality, and service. And uh, this is off of Bruce Epperly's book. So I got some quotes uh, to throw at you today. And we're taking a look at a passage that comes out of the Gospel of Mark that literally millions of churches are looking at uh, today. And Mark is peculiar. So remember, there are four Gospels uh, that tell the story of Jesus in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The earliest was the Gospel of Mark. It's also the shortest. Uh, and Matthew and Luke uh, borrowed from Mark and some of their own sources to come up with their versions. Gospel of John was written uh, decades later and is kind of its own thing altogether. There's some overlap, but uh, he had a whole different kind of agenda when he wrote that. So this is the earliest uh, gospel that we have. It was written probably uh, 30 plus years, put together 30 plus years after Jesus uh, did his thing. So here we go. And there's some peculiarities I'm going to point out here along the way. So this is a very interesting story. About that time, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee, that's in northern Israel, and John baptized him in the Jordan River. Now, just to remind you, uh, John, John the Baptist, as he's called, he was a distant cousin of Jesus, and uh, he was doing a baptism. He was the first guy that was really promoting baptism at large, and it was meant to be sort of a a way to prepare yourself uh, for this coming thing. He was convinced that God was going to do something maybe to the scale of Moses, you know, back in his day, uh, because Israel was occupied by Rome and uh, nobody liked that. Uh, there was corruption uh, in Judaism. Uh, the people in the north particularly didn't like that. And so everybody's waiting for change. And so there was like literally, if you read historians, there was an apocalyptic fever in the first century. Uh, people are just waiting for God to do something. And so John was one of these guys who uh, walked around. He looked like uh, the prophet Elijah. He wore a wore camel and ate locusts and honey and stuff. And he looked like a hippie, you know, <laughs> and people were listening to him. And uh, he was having people come. And Jesus was one of these guys who heard his message. Jesus wanted something done and wanted to see something change. So even Jesus decided to go through with this baptism. Uh, so we continue. So while he was coming up out of the water, this is in Jesus' baptism, Jesus saw heaven splitting open and the spirit like a dove came down on him. And there was a voice from heaven, you are my son whom I dearly love. In you I find happiness. So we need to remember uh, that Jesus is the one who's experiencing this. And that sometime later, he's recounting this experience uh, to his disciples who remember it for us and for our benefit. He's having a spiritual epiphany right here. One thing you need to remember about Mark is Mark has no birth narratives of Jesus. So there's no uh, Mary and Joseph. There's no Bethlehem. There's none of that. So there's no hint of any kind of divine origin in, in Jesus for the gospel of Mark. This is where Mark sees the difference. As Mark is saying, this Jesus comes along, he has this spiritual experience at his baptism that blows his mind. And that's when it all started. It's a whole different way of thinking about it. Jesus is probably like 36 years old, which is pretty old uh, for his time in history. So he's at the tail end of his life, mid-30s. It's sort of weird to think about, but that's true. So uh, he experiences this profound uh, favor from God, an anointing, a spiritual experience, and it's all wrapped in love. So whatever is happening, the, the, the take-home message is, you're loved, you're loved, you're loved. 
At once, the Spirit forced Jesus out into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness for 40 days, tempted by Satan. I'll talk about that. He was among the wild animals, and the angels took care of him. So remember, you're talking about a first century perspective here, a first century cosmology. This is how Mark or the Markan community uh, saw the world. Uh, it was uh, influenced by some Jewish thought, but it had been heavily uh, infiltrated by other Mediterranean regions, Greek philosophy. So you have a whole interesting mix of ways of thinking about the world and how things are. You see a picture of this Satan figure here. Talk a moment about that. In the Bible, this character shows up, but he shows up in all kinds of different ways. There's not one way to say, okay, well, this is, this is what this Satan figure is all about. Most of the time, uh, this Satan figure is like a prosecuting attorney, and that's actually the role that this figure plays. Uh, in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve, uh, the prosecuting attorney is, has Eve on the witness stand. So what did they say about the fruit? What did God tell you about the fruit? You could have some of the fruit, right? It's okay to eat all the fruit, right? And she's being tested and tempted. What am I going to do with this? Rather than a, a story about uh, sin entering the world, which is how a lot of us learned it, this story, according to the Jewish people who gave it to us, was really a, a, a coming-of-age story. This was them going to get kicked out of the nest. They're being grown-ups now. They're, they're dealing with the biggest questions of life in the garden. And now they're going to go out into the world as their own freestanding adults. To get to that point, the figure here, that serpent figure, tested them. Who are you? What are you really about? And that's what you see here. So if you, I'll, I'll give you permission, all right? I don't ascribe to this view, but if you want to hold on to a view of a devil with, you know, horns and a pitchfork and all that with an underworld below, have at it. Hey, if, that's, if that's doing it for you, that's, that's fine. You're welcome to have that cosmology. Uh, I don't think that makes a whole lot of sense. Uh, but what I do believe is that we all know what it's like uh, to have our metal tested, uh, to have our character tested, to go through things in life uh, that really force the question, who are you at your core? Who do you want to be? Because that's what's happening. This uh, banner over here, that's a depiction of Jesus in the wilderness. And I love it because... He's looking up at the cosmos, you know, at the galaxy above, and he's just wondering, what the heck happened to me at that baptism? And what does it mean for me uh, going forward? His life was shifted and in some way shattered. Uh, the story tells us 40 days. That's just a way of saying he was up there for a while <laughs> sorting things out. So I asked you the question, have you ever anything happened to you? It was kind of a life-altering thing where you had to ask the biggest questions of life. And sometimes uh, those questions are not welcome. The, the latter part about this thing, he was among the wild animals. I just think that's cool, especially since we're talking about St. Francis who loved wild animals and had conversations with coyotes and, <laughs> and birds and wolves and other things. And so I, I see that very much. He's at home uh, with the rest of the created order. And what does it mean that angels took care of him? I don't know. It just means that uh, he experienced the presence of God throughout and he turned out okay. The other gospels give us more flesh on this story. And end of the day, what, what is Jesus being tempted to? It all comes down to ego. Uh, all the things that are asked of him have to do with power, have to do with uh, political prestige, have to do with wealth. 
And in every case, Jesus is saying no to those egocentric needs. It's all about something bigger. Uh, we catch up with uh, a one way of thinking about what happened uh, from an author and a theologian named Ilya Delio. I had the privilege of hearing her last summer at a conference. She's a Franciscan herself uh, from the Catholic tradition of uh, St. Francis. She is crazy, crazy smart. Uh, she is uh, like, uh, she, she understands uh, quantum physics well, so she has that kind of scientific background, and she's also a process theologian as well. She talks about this experience that Jesus went through as like a refining fire. This is what she says. Love is a fire of transformation that constantly needs wood to keep the fire alive. Real fire is destructive. Throw yourself into a fire and you will be destroyed. God's fire is destructive too because it can swiftly eliminate all self-illusions, grandiose ideas, ego inflation, and self-centeredness. Throw yourself into the spiritual fire of divine love and everything you grasp for yourself will be destroyed until there is nothing left but the pure truth of yourself. Heavy duty stuff. And I think she's right. My question for you is how well do we welcome this fire? And if we're honest with ourselves, we don't. <laughs> we don't most of the time unless we absolutely have to. If our actions, our behaviors, our attitudes have finally caught up with us, and sometimes when our nose has hit the wall enough, then we'll stop and say, what, what is happening here? Who do I want to be? Who have I become? Uh, these are things of growth and maturity, which is the whole point of everything in spirituality. If we're not becoming more mature, grounded, more lovely people, what, what are we doing? <laughs> That's the whole point of all of this. So Jesus has this refiner's fire moment. Uh, that his mind is blown and he has made his decision. I'm going to go the way of the Spirit of God, which I understand, as Jesus is saying, uh, and the Jewish tradition is all about the word shalom. Remember, shalom is this vision of everything working in harmony together, of us having uh, our own peace within ourselves, but also peace with everybody else, with all the created order, taking care of everything, helping everything flourish and thrive. Jesus comes off his camping trip, and this is what happened. After John was arrested, that was Jesus' time to take the stage, Jesus came into Galilee announcing God's good news, saying, Now is the time. Here comes God's kingdom. Uh, change your hearts and lives and trust this good news. So he was looking at the shalom thing as a really cool thing, as an opportunity. Not, not a time where God's going to come and kick everybody's butt, but a time when Somehow the love of God is going to infiltrate people and communities and make the world a better place. So my question for you uh, today is what's driving you as you consider how you wish to steward your life? What are you about? What are the questions before you that are testing and tempting you? And what are the small things you can do that are aligned with shalom? I like this idea of small things that we can do that are aligned with shalom, because I think we, we miss the point. We look for big things that we can do to change the world, and really it's probably small things uh, one at a time. Uh, Epperly gives us this quote from his book. Jewish mystics note that if you save a soul, it is as if you have saved the world. If you destroy a soul, it is as if you have destroyed the world. 
Even the smallest of actions, hugging a person with leprosy, that was Francis's thing, uh, welcoming an undocumented worker as kin, choosing to eat lower on the food chain can be a factor in transforming the world. The challenges we face today often seem beyond our capabilities, and we are tempted to give up hope until we realize that with Francis, that the world is saved one act at a time, and we can turn the tides of life individually and corporately from hate to love and death to life. When I interviewed Epperly a month or so ago, um, I really wanted to find out how this played out in his life. Is this just something that he thinks about, writes about, or does he actually do it? And I knew uh, from enough interaction, I also saw him at the same conference, and I knew enough about his story uh, that I knew that he was a very devoted grandpa. And so I asked him, so what difference does this stuff make, and how do you play this out with your own grandkids? And he had this to say. Yeah, that's a good question. And they are very astute. They, they probably go to Montgomery County, Maryland schools, which are among the best in the, the country. It's a very uh, liberal uh, school system. Very diversity is, is, is very important. I think the, the main issue for them at that age is to listen and to ask questions. I mean, one of the joys of my my grandparenting as it evolves is reading the books they're reading in school, not to ban them, but, uh, but reading the books, uh, the, the, uh, one of my boys, uh, grandchildren is reading the giver, uh, you know, and, and that's a wonderful book and very provocative. So I, I've never read it before. So I read the book and we, you know, we talk about it, uh, uh, and, and I realized that I can add something to it. Uh, how, where does this fit in? The other boy is uh, reading the, uh, who's a sixth grader, one's in seventh ones, is reading uh, The Red Scarf Girl, which is about the, the cultural revolution in China and how a girl is conflicted between uh, her respect for her, and love for her parents who were a little, were not, not, uh, uh, patricians, uh, but were bourgeois, were considered bourgeois, and her sense of loyalty to the cultural revolution, and she's 12 years old or so, and raise questions about, you know, how you make decisions. Uh, in both cases, it's interesting, the giver is the desire to have the perfect society based on sameness. Everything in its place and for, uh, you know, and everyone following what they're doing, and the same as it worked there for the girl with the red scarf girl is that a society that demands sameness. And the question, even for young children, how much order and how much chaos, how much novelty, how much order. And, and that really translates to being a teenager, uh, you know, uh, uh, and saying, well, you know, you're going to disagree with your parents and it's okay to say no to your parents uh, and to me to develop your ego, but you have to do it in a way that respects them. And, and that's the challenge when you're a teenager, of course, you know, uh, the, you know, doors slamming and uh, all manner of other things are typical for teenage life and probably even more so now than when I was the parent of a teenager. Uh, the world has changed. Uh, but I think, and in just basic decency and reverence for life, because I believe every child, as Pelagius says, uh, one of the great theologians of Christianity, 
wood that Augustine and Pelagian had both been kept in the yin and yang of theology and not, uh, not Pelagius not declared a heretic for actually saying the right things. Uh, he was the, the guy at the rally who held the, held the view others didn't like, uh, but that every child is born revealing the face of God. And, and, and there is a decency and a goodness in every child that has to be brought out. And, and just simply the, the sense of, of, of seeing the holiness uh, and reminding that everyone's on a journey and, and do, whether they're doing well or poorly, they may very well be doing the best they can. I thought what he had to say was just so cool, that he would be that attentive to his own grandkids to read the books that they're reading so that they could have substantive conversation. Man, I would have loved that. I had, I had good parents, don't get me wrong, but I would, have, I would have loved that. How would that have taken my education to just a different level? So uh, he's living by example here. He's deeply involved in his middle school kids' lives. He picks them up from school, helps them with their homework, feeds them snacks every day. That's all cool. I asked him also, but the clip was too long about uh, senior adults and what he would say to senior adults because he's a senior adult. He's 71. And uh, so he talked about things which were very familiar uh, to me and to you, that some people, when they retire, uh, it frees up capacity and time for them to do things uh, for other people. And he talked about how some seniors, you know, become the ride to get to uh, a doctor's appointment or running errands or whatever, or can volunteer to church. And so I just want to celebrate. We got a couple people uh, today and Danny and Marsha who are cooking up that chili uh, so we can have lunch uh, today. So thank you, uh, Danny and Marsha. Yeah. And we have lots of people who give all kinds of time. And I'm just so appreciative of that. And I hope, I'm pretty sure that it's working for you too, right? That you actually like to do this. <laughs> uh, that we're not just, you know, forcing you to cook chili, you know, for a bunch of people but that you actually enjoy serving and doing this. Uh, we have a new speaker system that we're going to be mounting in the next uh, couple of weeks. And so we had a team of guys in here uh, yesterday on that lift thing over there. We're going to be selling rides on that later today if you want to do some bungee jumping uh, from 20 feet. No, we're not going to do that. Anyway, um, but anyway, a bunch of guys uh, who, are, who have done so much work and saved the church so many tens of thousands of dollars because they're willing to use their skills and their gifts and their time uh, to help us make improvements and deal with things that need to be dealt with. I mean, it's just amazing. Uh, we've got other volunteers that, you know, have the capacity and the skill set uh, to bring us a very particular uh, skill set uh, to, to bear a crosswalk, like Ed Edwards here, who's our treasurer. I mean, you know, he has a CPA background, a lot of time in business, and he's helping us, you know, shape things so that into the distant future, uh, we're going to be able to understand our financial picture very well uh, for a long time. I and mean, it's just such a gift uh, that we have this. And I could go on and on and on. And George Webster, uh, who, we, uh, who we marvel at around here, he's our trash guy here at church. Now, most of the time, if you're dealing with trash, that's the grumpiest person, you know, on campus. But Ted and I just crack up because when George does trash, he like brightens up every trashy space he's going to because he's got such a great attitude. And I'm so appreciative of George because not only is he taking care of our trash, but he's a, just a fun guy, you know, everywhere he goes. And so these are ways that those small things matter and they really do. And so if you're 
figuring out a way to plug in. You know, we can always use help for different things here at church, but it's not just a church thing. Uh, it's in the community. How are you helping people out? Just one little brief story uh, that impacted my wife and I is uh, not long after we moved here, it's been a couple of years of moving here, we got adopted by uh, an almost retired couple, uh, Gary and Karen Mills. And uh, I don't know if they just saw in our faces that we could use a date night now and again <laughs> or what, because uh, Lynn and I moved out here, no family out here with two babies, a six-month-old and a two-and-a-half-year-old. And they decided to adopt us, and they adopted our kids as their own grandkids and treated them like grandkids. And that, was a, that was, ended up being a gift for them because they didn't have any grandkids of their own, uh, and it was a huge gift to us. So once a week, Lynn and I could go out and take our kids to swimming lessons or, or whatever uh, that we could do. And it, of course, created this extra set of people in our kids' lives that they knew loved them. And so Lynn and I try to return that favor. And so we've got friends and neighbors that have these wonderful kids, and we just want to be in their lives, one, to help our, our friends and neighbors, but then also because we know how important it was for our kids to just know that they had another, another set of people that were in their corner and just love them and no agenda other than that. Just, hey, you, you're amazing people. And so if you got somebody in your world that is kind of like that, I just encourage you to do that uh, because you're, you're, you're giving a gift to yourself, uh, but you're also giving a gift to those kids or those parents or what have you. So uh, think about that. Well, uh, Epperly goes on. He says, fidelity to God requires us to change our lifestyles, live more simply, transform the goals of our institutions from consumption to preservation, and claim humbly our roles as God's companions in healing the earth. While the success of our quest for environmental healing is not assured, our calling is to take up the task for God, our children and grandchildren, future generations will never, we will never meet, and for our planet and all its wondrous diversity. Uh, in our early service, I had a little bit of time left for Q&A, and one of the things that was lamented was that the church has been terrible, really, honestly, about championing the cause of our own environment around the world. We've been, the evangelical branch has been basically silent, and they might have one trash pickup day around the church, you know, and call it good, and that's to the chagrin of the church. And part of it is theology, because part of the theology is, within some parts of the church, is that, well, if the whole thing's going to be destroyed anyway someday, then why worry that much about it? Because that's part of that theology. But that's terrible theology, for one. I don't think that's how, it's, how we're supposed to understand it. If God's about shalom, uh, and we're supposed to take care of each other and everything, the church ought to be at the forefront. And sometimes it requires... Uh, help from other places uh, to get us thinking about things. And this person, probably more than anybody in recent years, is the champion of that cause. So I've been mispronouncing her name. I've I have pronounced it Greta Thunberg. And apparently that's not how you say it in Swedish. <laughs> so Greta's right, uh, but I think I got this right. It doesn't, I still have to not look at it to hear it, but I think it's it's like Toonberry or something like that. It's more like a soft J at the end that's more of an I. Uh, at 15 years old, uh, she stopped going to high school uh, in protest of her government leaders in Sweden not taking environmental health seriously. 
And she started to get a following. She got international attention, so much so that, uh, that she had a global audience. Right now, she has 15 million followers on her Instagram account. Pretty, pretty strong. Uh, when she was a few years older, uh, she sailed a boat uh, from uh, Plymouth, England to New York to address the United Nations on an environmental uh, health summit. And when she stood before the UN, she scolded them. And she said to them, how dare you? How dare you not take seriously my future and those who come after me in the world? <laughs> a teenager scolding all these adults. And she got their attention, and we're still talking about her today. Well, this is just because she had a fire in her belly, and she couldn't not talk about it. So I'm wondering, what's the fire in your belly? Uh, because my hunch is, is that when you dial into the fire in your belly, uh, you're not going to be able to shut up about it either. Think of Jenny Olson. I'll pick on her for a moment. Uh, who got a fire in her belly years ago about uh, doing something about teen suicide and gave up her business and graphic design uh, to devote her, her skill set and helping that. And what a difference that's made in Napa and the attention about their approach has even gotten national attention. That's a fire in your belly. Uh, I'm a pastor because of fire in my belly. Uh, I got cap, I almost cashed the whole thing in. You know my story. Uh, but this whole shalom idea and what God's wanting to do, that's still the fire in my belly about what does it mean for us to do that? What's the fire in your belly? Um, Epperly goes on, last quote. Francis and Claire challenge us to seek God's pathway of healing and peace, which is found in self-transcendence and kinship with all creation. Peace and healing come when we sacrifice self-interest and the defensiveness that comes with it for world loyalty. What a great phrase. I'll come back to that. And the expansiveness that emerges when we love our neighbors as ourselves, not just spiritually, but in our daily economic choices and commitment to healing the planet and its creatures. There's a dangerous thing afoot in our country called Christian nationalism, and you need to be really aware of its danger. It's the kind of thing that led uh, Hitler uh, to begin World War II with Nazism. Uh, and it is, it's here. There's a documentary coming out on it uh, by, Robert, or by Rob Reiner. Uh, be looking for that uh, to educate yourselves about this. Christian nationalism is neither Christian, <laughs> uh, nor is it helpful to, uh, to thinking about our nation. And so I want to throw that at you and instead uh, have you think about that phrase that is, was born out of process theology, as far as I know, uh, called world loyalty, which I think is really the true uh, Christian way of thinking and true of every enduring religion in the world, is how are we taking care of each other and the world? What are we doing about that? And that's a challenge uh, for all of us. So uh, with that, I don't have any fancy uh, poem to, to finish out with uh, today, uh, but I would like to just take a second uh, to wonder with you, um, what is sticking with you as we talk about this stuff, about what we can do to make a difference? Is anything poking you uh, today? Any nudges happening in you today? Now, I can wait till 12 o'clock for somebody to speak, so... <laughs> Anything messing with you? Yeah. Yeah. 
All right, I love that. I love that. That's awesome. All right, we have a few single moms here. They're really happy to hear that. <laughs> I hope, uh, hope, I can't wait to hear what you do with that. That's awesome. Yeah. Anybody else? Anything messing with you? Nudging you? Yeah, Lisa. Yeah. Uh, difficult to say. Nobody was, nobody had their phone to record what was happening at that time. <laughs> uh, so we're kind of reliant on Mark's cosmology, uh, and he may have had a very literal uh, interpretation of that, and would have been very comfortable with that. Um, what we do with that, uh, who knows? Um, don't, I don't have a good good clarification for you about what that could possibly mean if that was like uh, hearkening back to a Moses manna in the wilderness kind of a thing, or, or if it was just his generally sweeping way of saying that um, he survived because God was graceful and gracious with him, and he was, he was fine. So, or was it uh, that there were other people uh, who acted as angels to him and shared their food? We, we don't know. Uh, so no clarification. I will, I will tell you this, though, uh, to bring it home to relevance, is what do we do with it now? We can't know uh, what it means that angels attended Jesus 2,000 years ago, but we can wonder uh, how can we attend to people today? We can wonder how does God show up in our midst today and experience that? Uh, so anyway, I just gave you more questions. Yeah. <laughs> Anything else? Yeah, Carrie. Yeah. That's, that's, a, that's a great question. And that could be all of these things, single moms, uh, foster uh, kids. Um, these could be part of what's part of our next chapter as a church at Crosswalk. Because I kind of threw that at you last week. You know, what, it, what does it mean for us in this day and age to be a church? What, is it, what's a faith com what kind of faith community is needed in our world today? In a world where increasingly people are just abandoning religion altogether because of how religious people have acted. So what does it mean for us to be a loving presence and somehow help foster the shalom thing? And uh, foster kids are, are significantly statistically at risk. And what can we do uh, to help with that? It's a great question. And some churches are really all about it and they're doing great work. All right. Thank you for uh, playing along and your feedback. That's great. And just pray that your, uh, the fire in your belly will continue. Let's end our time together uh, by saying this, if you're comfortable, out loud. Uh, this is our prayer together to end our service. God of all creation, all creatures great and small, open my eyes to the wonders of your world and my life. Help me to pause and notice. Help me to be aware and amazed and share my joy with others. Help me to live more simply, to see my consumption in light of the well-being of others and the planet. Let me experience the freedom of spiritual and material simplicity, and let me share my wealth to support those in need and causes that promote justice and planetary healing. Amen. Thanks for coming. Hope you had a great experience today, and let's eat some chili. All right.